And when Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, and Salome brought spices so that they might go and anoint him. And very early on the first day of the week, when the sun had risen, they went to the tomb. And they were saying to each other, Who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance of the tomb? And looking up, they saw that the stone had been rolled back. It was very large. And entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting on the right side, dressed in a white robe, and they were alarmed. And he said to them, Do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He is risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him, but go. Tell his disciples in Peter that he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him, just as he told you. And they went out and fled from the tomb, for trembling and astonishment had seized them. And they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. Um, so the oldest and most reliable transmissions of the Gospel of Mark end here which, as you can well imagine, has caused a lot of confusion and controversy because someone either added to it or took away from it or perhaps the end was lost from the original. Truth is that we don't know, but we will be talking about that um, um, as well on this episode, the, the verses that I didn't read. Some people are so passionate about this unknown that they consider it heresy to even admit it. Uh, however, it really isn't that big of a deal one way or the other. It's good to know about and to know the arguments pro and con for the longer ending, actually the longer endings, because there are at least three others. Um, right now, we're going to treat this as though verse 8 is the last written by the author, and then we will explore whether or not that makes sense. And it's something where everyone must come to their own conclusions. But the deal is that nobody knows for sure. And it definitely isn't a salvational issue. So it's interesting, but let's not fool ourselves into believing that it's worth dividing over. This week, we are going to talk about the scandalous nature of these verses and how shocking this account would have been. Far beyond the claims of a man being raised from the dead into a resurrection body before, long before the general resurrection, um, they had all expected at the end of the age. This is anything but a final chapter that wraps up neatly and nicely. And in fact, you know, no matter which ending you go with, leaves more questions than answers. Hi, I am Tyler Don Rosenquist. And welcome to Character in Context, where I teach the historical and ancient sociological context of scripture with an eye to developing the character of the Messiah. If you prefer written material, I have six worths, six, seven years worth of blog over at theancientbridge.com, as well as my six books available on Amazon, including a four-volume curriculum series dedicated to teaching scriptural context in a way that even kids can understand it, called Context for Kids. And I have two video channels on YouTube with free Bible teachings for both adults and kids. You can find the link for those on my website. Uh, past broadcasts of this program can be found at characterincontext.podbean.com. And transcripts can be had for most broadcasts, the overwhelming majority, really, uh, at theancientbridge.com. 
If you have kids, I also have a weekly broadcast where I teach them Bible context in a way that shows them why they can trust God and how he wants to have a relationship with them through the Messiah, which is called Context for Kids. No big surprise there. All scripture this week comes courtesy of the English Standard Version, the ESV. And when we do Matthew, that's going to change to the CSB, the Christian Standard Bible, which my friend Matt Knapper, who's who's working on his PhD thesis right now. He got us all on it. It's, it really does. It is a good version. <laughs> um, but uh, a list of my resources can be found attached to the transcript for part two of this series at theancientbridge.com. Of course, since this is the last thing I'll mark, I've actually got to get all of the things on it, all done, all my links, so you have the entire resource list. I think I only have one thing to add to it, and it's from this week. All right, now, last week, oh, last time, actually, weeks and weeks ago, as, you know, I'd been busy for, oh, the month before, uh, preparing for conferences, and, and had to, I had to set this final episode aside. So we talked about the works of Joseph of Arimathea, and his absolute courage in the risk he took as a non-family member to claim the body of a man crucified on the formal charge of sedition, which is, you know, rebellion against the Roman Empire. Big bad, you know, it's the worst of the worst as far as being dangerous. That there were no repercussions is another witness that Pilate didn't consider Yeshua, or you, know, you may call him Jesus, to be guilty, but instead railroaded with trumped-up charges <coughs> by political adversaries, opponents. Um, so don't get me wrong, he was a brutal and evil man, but he wasn't an idiot. Joseph was allowed to take the body down from the cross, and it wouldn't have been a long journey, uh, according to Dr. Joan Taylor, who we've talked about a lot, uh, to his own freshly hewn tomb within that same Iron Age rock quarry that was now a cultivated area, a.k.a. garden. And you might ask how a rock quarry would become cultivatable. You know, over the course of a thousand years, and especially with the very hot, dry winds in the summer, dirt moves and collects and gathers in depressions. From there, um, cultivation is not an impossible thing to accomplish. And, you know, you really got to use all the land you've got available near cities. All right, let's start um, this uh, chapter 16 of the Gospel of Mark, um, verse 1. When the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, and Salome brought spices so that they might go and anoint him. So, at the end of the weekly Sabbath, what we would call Saturday after sundown, those who had gathered to Yeshua at the cross, with the exception of his mother, uh, brought, uh, bought spices. They bought spices, not brought. And people wonder if they didn't know that Joseph had already performed this service, where Yeshua, you know, would have been washed, which was allowable even on the Sabbath. Um, it's considered a good deed the dead and and then wrapped in spices and linen and lay in the tomb however even if they knew and were there to perform the washing and you know it's it's possible they helped joseph because carrying that amount of dead weight 
with how torn up the body was, you know, and Joseph could not have accomplished this alone. Well, we'll see if that's um, something they could have done. It would speak to the esteem that they held Yeshua in because um, the weight of the spices applied was directly proportional to the person's honor. When Gamaliel uh, was placed in the tomb, they reportedly wrapped him in 40 pounds of aromatic spices. That's according to Josephus uh, in his Antiquity 17.8.3. And according to the Gospel of John, Yeshua was wrapped in just short of twice that amount. The normal amount of spices used for a VIP, and just so you know, commoners uh, were only anointed with oil. All right, this doing the spices thing was not a requirement, and it was just way too expensive. Um, the spices used for a normal VIP was about 10 pounds. What we don't know is if these pounds are some, uh, these amounts are somewhat legendary and symbolic. You know, the numbers in scripture are often not literal as they were meant to communicate concepts. And as such, you know, a lot of the times they were idiomatic, like, you know, whenever you say 40 years, it doesn't mean it had to be 40 years. 40 years meant something to them. All right. Or the number 40. I also want to point out that a Roman pound was only 12.4 ounces instead of our modern 16 ounces. So according to John, Yeshua was wrapped in 54 of our modern pounds of spices and Gamaliel in 29 pounds. Of course, you know, Mark doesn't mention any of that as Yeshua died Long before Gamaliel, about 20 years before, it may well be that a number twice that amount was given not because it's accurate, but because of the truth of Yeshua's standing. Even if that makes no sense to us, it did to them, and God always communicates at our level. I mean, their level when he was, you know, whoever's level he's talking to. And that's a good thing, too. And every time I think that we're out of Mark and Sandwiches, another one pops up. Remember that a Markin sandwich is the term used by scholars to describe the author's habit of sandwiching one story inside another one, where the outside story needs the inside story to be properly understood and interpreted. In this case, this has been, you know, a really huge sandwich because it began with the anointing of Yeshua by the unnamed woman in Mark 14.3. What we have here are bookends on each side of the passion account where women are or are at least trying to anoint him for burial. It is significant that only the living Yeshua could be anointed by his women followers. Let's go to verse 2. And very early on the first day of the week when the sun had risen, they went to the tomb. They had at least watched and possibly even helped. Um, and this is another reason why I'm in agreement with uh, Justin Martyr, a second century church father who was born a Samaritan and who often gives us a window into those times and the life um, that the crucifixion happened on a Friday and that the three days and nights were idiomatic, just as we see throughout scripture with that you know, expression. But they would have set out to the tomb around 5.30 in the morning as soon as it was light enough to be safe for a group of women to travel. 
no way uh, could they have gone Saturday night after the Sabbath. Um, and if there were days in between the crucifixion and the Sabbath, they certainly would have gone to do it during those days. I mean, the markets were open and everything. Um, but predators would be in uh, the areas where crucifixions were happening. And I'm not just talking about the centurions. Now, the first day of the week, Mia Ton Sepaton, and this is going to be important later, Mia Ton Sepaton, um, of course, is Sunday and also represents the eighth day. It would also be the day of the first fruit presentation of the barley in the temple to Yahweh so that the new harvest could be enjoyed. So there's a lot more symbolism here than Mark generally uses. It's really thick and very heavy. Early on the first day of the week, um, the eighth day, which is symbolic of the new creation after the Sabbath, which celebrates the installment of Yahweh as king over the universe in his cosmic tabernacle. The sun has arisen, light has replaced or conquered darkness. The faithful disciples have traveled to a place of death and decay. And all four gospels are adamant about their presence, which is stunning for reasons we'll cover in a bit. If they had helped Joseph, then they knew what to expect. And if they hadn't, then they have no idea about the condition of the body of Yeshua, what it will be um, as they enter the tomb. Verse 3, And they were saying to one another, Who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance of the tomb? And that's more remarkable than it seems. They have gone to considerable expense, perhaps not knowing if Yeshua had been properly prepared or just wanting to redouble the honor owed to their teacher. But they have so many questions. Who will roll away the stone? And it's no small concern because the stones had to be awkward and heavy enough to keep animals out. But let's maybe tip a sacred cow here and ask ourselves if the stone was really a disc or some other rounded shape. Although the disc is the popular picture that we see and the text in English certainly does support the idea of a disc and there were tombs with disc-shaped stones, um, well, how likely was it? And the reason I ask is because out of more than 900 tombs excavated in the area, only four had disc-shaped stones that could be rolled aside, and those belonged to families who were either royalty or extremely wealthy. Now, although such stones were more pop common in Byzantine times, and I mean like, uh, that's like a thousand years later, at this point, um, they were very much a novelty for the uber-rich. I'm... Uh, linking a great article here by Megan Souter, who is the managing editor at the Biblical Archaeology Society. She has also ex excavated at Eshkelon and Tel Shimron, having a master's degree in biblical archaeology from Wheaton, which means that she probably got to take classes from John Walton, making me officially jealous. The article is called, How Was Jesus' Tomb Sealed? Examining the Tomb of Jesus in Light of Second Temple Period Jerusalem Tombs. Now, the openings of these tombs were actually quite small. 
Nothing like the one at the Holy Land experience, which, you know, I was able to just walk into. One would have to get down and crawl inside, and they would be most often blocked by large, long stone corks, which would have to first be pulled out and then rolled away. And this was an incredibly difficult thing to do. It's something animals could not do, which was the point. All of the synoptics, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, used the word apaculio, which is a compound meaning both to roll and away from. John uses something different to describe what happened. John uses the word iro, um, which means to take away. What John is describing suits the archaeological evidence much better than simply rolling the stone away without any explanation of what direction or how. I mean, but the audience and they, you know, they just go, oh, I know what that's. Doing. If it had been disc shaped, it would have been far less awkward for a few women to manage. But if it was a solid stone cork needing to be pulled out and rolled away, they would definitely need some more muscle. What's really amazing is that even knowing that they couldn't manage it themselves, they went anyway. Um, verse 4, and looking up, they saw that the stone had been rolled back. It was very large. The description is the generic uh, megas, with the qualifier that it was not only large, but extremely large. And before we assume that it means tall, it doesn't make that claim. The audience has to be taken into account. Remember, we have all these foreign Roman concepts and loan words inserted into Mark's account. This wasn't a Jewish or solely Jewish audience. This was, at the very least, mixed, and probably the majority were converted Gentiles. In Rome, cremation was the normal practice for dealing um, with all but the most elaborate burials, you know, state burials where they would use a sarcophagus. <clears throat> the author of Mark, being the very first written compilation of the oral stories about Yeshua, would need to explain about the tomb and about how they kept out wild animals. And so the stone blocking the entrance would be described as very big. But the stone, whether a disc rolled to the side or pulled out and then rolled away, um, you know, that's no longer protecting the tomb from predators. Um, they, they must have thought was someone already in there caring for him? Had he been dragged off by wild animals to be eaten and, you know, worse, defecated onto the ground somewhere? Or perhaps his body was stolen by those who hated him? Nothing is said here about their assumptions or their mood, whether they were curious or horrified. Verse 5, and entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting on the right side, dressed in a white robe, and they were alarmed. Now it talks about how they're feeling. They would have had to get down low to get in, at the very least stooping in order to enter the larger space, inside or having to crawl in. Why were they alarmed? One, this was not someone they knew. Two, his robes weren't likely just white. Although uh, Lucos can simply mean white. 
Um, in this sort of situation, it also carries the connotation of being dazzling, like Yeshua's robes at his transfiguration. Now, I'm going to tell you, and you might think I'm nut nutty. You, you probably thought I was nutty before this, um, but I, I did see an angel like this once. <laughs> once. And the word alarm just doesn't cut it. I screamed bloody murder, which is really embarrassing to admit. It is more alarming than you can imagine. And especially when you have no warning and when it isn't a vision. Um, angels in visions and dreams are not scary. And in fact, um, they inspire questions more than anything else. But in real life, ain't nobody going to be nonchalant about that. And whenever somebody tells me about casually seeing angels, just no. I'm not buying it. Even when they aren't hostile, they're just, what they are is awe-inspiring, okay? But this quote-unquote young man is sitting on the right side, which is indicative of a position of high honor, and obviously being the angel chosen to deliver this good, life-changing, world-altering news, you know, that's extremely honorable. Uh, verse 6, And he said to them, do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He has risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him. Another indicator that this young man is an angel is his opening greeting. <clears throat> Do not be alarmed. Me ekthambeo. Um, this means that the first people to hear the good news of the resurrection were women... But it also tells us that they were almost certainly not helping Joseph of Arimathea, who evidently had other help because the angel says, see the place that where, where they laid him. Um, the word for risen here is Igero, which appears throughout the Gospel of Mark 19 times. Half of those, it refers to a literal resurrection, and another five refer to Yeshua raising someone to their feet or commanding them to get up after restoring them in some way. And so, although this can be a very generic word, like just, you know, standing up or getting out of bed, you know, standing up from being seated, Mark uses it very deliberately as the foreshadowing and fulfillment of the greater exodus that began very quietly in the relative backwater Galilee, uh, far from Jerusalem, and, you know, which exploded after uh, Pentecost or uh, Shavuot. Now, something else here that is really fascinating is that not a single Jewish source denies that the tomb was empty. For that matter, they also don't deny that Yeshua was a real person who lived either. What they do attempt to do, some attempt to discredit his miracles as sorcery, and they do differ as to the nature of the trial, but no one denies the empty tomb, which makes it as much of a historical fact as any in history. The tomb was empty, um, but it's why or what it meant or how it happened or whatever is what's debated and, and contested. And a pause right we're, we're, we're almost to the end of the, uh, the half hour here. So, you know, you get some sources saying that, you know, his disciples, uh, stole the body 
You get other ones saying, well, he wasn't really dead. <laughs> I don't know. Yeah, I, I, I don't know how you get up and walk away after, you know, you've been tortured and, and crucified. And and in Roman centurion isn't going to lie and say that um, you're dead when you're not. But it, it it's really it's it's really one of these amazing things. I mean, we have got you know things in history that we take as I'm going to say gospel truth. You know, even though it has nothing to do with the gospel, on far less evidence. But when you have um, when you have both friends and enemies saying, "Yeah, the tomb was empty." Well, it kind of just from there, there's, there's really not much argument you can make. Uh, they're, they're validating his existence and his death and his burial and some sort of meaning to the empty tomb. And we'll be right back. Rosenquist and welcome back to the second half of this week's character in context where we're talking about the final chapter uh chapter 16 of the gospel of mark and i will tell you something i uh i'm having a heck of a time with my nose i must have sniffed in a snootful of something because oh my gosh just sneezing and sneezing and itching and itching but i'm gonna try and get through this without being too gross um uh, I was just getting ready to talk about um, the empty tomb, you know, and, and um, Justin Martyr, who was a Samaritan. He was born within two generations of the death of Yeshua. And so he really knew, you know, um, he'd grown up there and he knew a lot. And times didn't change that quickly back then. Really, the, the biggest change was that... Um, there was no temple in Jerusalem was um, very much changed, obviously. But um, Justin Martyr and his dialogue with uh, Trifo, and he was born around 100 of the common area, era, he wrote the following. And although, and, and Trifo was um, a Jewish rabbi, Justin says, and though all the men of your nation knew the incidents in the life of Jonah, and though Christ said among you that he would give the sign of Jonah, exhorting you to repent of your wicked deeds, at least after he rose again from the dead, and to mourn before God as did the Ninevites, in order that your nation and city might not be taken and destroyed, as they have been destroyed, yet... You not only have not repented after you learned that he rose from the dead, but as I said before, you have sent chosen and ordained men throughout all the world to proclaim that a godless and lawless heresy has sprung up from one Jesus, a Galilean deceiver, whom we crucified, but his disciples stole him by night from the tomb where he was laid when unfastened from the cross, and now deceive men by asserting 
that he has risen from the dead and ascended to heaven. Moreover, you accuse him of having taught those godless, lawless, and unholy doctrines which you mention to the, to the condemnation of those who confess him to be Christ, and a teacher from and son of God. Besides this, even when your city is captured and your land ravaged, you do not repent, but dare to utter imprecations on him and all who believe in him. Yet we do not hate you or those who, by your means, have conceived such prejudices against us, but we pray that even now all of you may repent and obtain mercy from God, the compassionate and long-suffering Father of all." And this is Dialogue with Trifo 108. Now, this was written somewhere between 10 and 30 years after the Bar Kokhba revolt, when Judea was absolutely devastated, and both Jews and Christians were permanently barred from Jerusalem, which became a completely Roman city, complete with a temple to Jupiter atop the Temple Mount. Justin is actually pleading with them to see both of the destructions of Jerusalem over the course of less than a hundred years as proof of God's judgment against the city as predicted by Yeshua. One more thing. In typical angelic fashion, there are no details about why or how or what happened or exactly when. So whenever people are bickering about the end of the Sabbath or Sunday morning, it's all just opinion. Nothing to get into a huff about. All right, verse, oh, is this verse 7? Yeah, verse 7, but go. Tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him, just as he told you. Wait, what? This angel is telling women to go witness the empty tomb and the resurrection to the disciples and even Peter, Mr. Oh, even if all these other jokers deny you, I never will. I'll die first. Why is this a problem? And why is this also a clear mark of authenticity of the count? And when we look for, you know, signs of authenticity, they come down to factoids that no one in their right mind would make up like a crucified Messiah, so shameful that it made an utter mockery of believers. In this statement, though, an angel is telling illegal witnesses to go and give the most earth-shattering news in all of history. Why illegal? Because in terms of credibility, women were lumped in with children and the mentally disabled and criminals as being unfit to carry news of any importance or to testify in court. This is a Mishnah Rosh Hashanah 1.8, talking about those who can um, give testimony as to the sighting of the first sliver of the moon so for the beginning of the month. The following are unfit to give testimony, as they are considered thieves and robbers. One who plays with dice or other games of chance for money, uh, those who lend money with interest, those who race pigeons and place wagers on the outcome, and merchants who deal in the produce of the sabbatical year, which may be eaten but may not be an object of commerce, and slaves. This is the principle. Any testimony for which a woman is unfit, these two are unfit. 
Although in certain cases, a woman's testimony is accepted, you know, like to testify to the death of someone's husband, in the majority of cases, her testimony is not valid. Uh, Mishawot, uh, 4.1. Oh, my nose. Uh, the oath of testimony is practiced with regard to men, but not with regard to women. With regard to non-relatives of the litigants, but not with regards to relatives. With regard to those fit to testify, but not with regard to those unfit to testify due to a transgression they have performed. And the oath of testimony is practiced only with regard to those fit to testify. <coughs> uh, Josephus Antiquities 4.8.15 But let not a single witness be credited, but three or two at the least, and such, and those such whose testimony is confirmed by their good lives. But let not the testimony of women be admitted on account of the levity and boldness of their sex. Nor let servants be admitted to give testimony on account of the ignobility of their soul. So they're, they're not, you know, important enough. <laughs> Since it is probable that they may not speak truth, either, either out of hope of gain or fear of punishment. But if anyone be believed to have borne false witness, let him, when he is convicted, suffer all the same punishments which he against whom he bore witness was to have suffered. All right, so, although no such prohibition is in Torah, uh, nor against women having leadership or authority in general, and seems to be more of a Jewish response to Hellenization, which would explain Paul having to deal with it in some places, but not others within the greater Roman Empire. Uh, we do see these beliefs in both later, um, Mishnaic, you know, about 200 years later, and contemporary sources, uh, which would be Josephus. Josephus was born like seven years after Yeshua died. Um, women at this point in time are not trusted to be serious enough to give testimony in court unless it's, you know, the identity of a dead family member. Uh, thank goodness they thought we were clever enough to get that right. <laughs> but this angel obviously isn't impressed with the opinions of the guys in this point in history and gives the job to the women who came to the tomb. Now, the specific wording of the message tells them that Yeshua is going before them to Galilee. And the language is very specific. Um, it is proago, uh, a present tense, which means now, kind of term. It's a military term used for troop movements. But where else do we find it? In the Greek um, Old Testament, a few hundred years before Yeshua, we see it used in ways that describe the fate of those who cherish wisdom. Um, we see it uh, to describe the promotion of Mordecai. And in 2 Maccabees 10.1, it is used to describe Yahweh himself leading the troops forward in order to purify the temple. Um, and where is Yeshua going? He's going to Galilee. Why? Because it's far from safe in Jerusalem, which has been judged for condemning and destroying the presence of Yahweh. The city, as we saw in chapter 13, is under the most severe judgments, as is the temple. In 40 years, and then again, 65 years later, they it will no longer even exist as Jerusalem. <clears throat> Truth is that Jerusalem was all but wiped off the map for hundreds and hundreds of years. 
although they were returned for the festival of Shavuot, um, or Pentecost in, in, you know, about six weeks, um, the time they spend with glorified Yeshua will be in the north. When did he tell them this? Uh, Mark 14, 28, at the Last Supper. And actually, the wording is almost entirely <clears throat> the same. And they went out and fled from the tomb. For trembling and astonishment had seized them, and they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. This is verse 8. And this is the end of some of our oldest and most important manuscripts of Mark. But we'll get to that in a minute. Frankly, this has all the emotional turmoil of those who believe and do not believe that Pluto is a planet. Oh yeah, people fight about it. And about the ending of Mark. Mostly because no one can prove either or. We just have opinions and some people even have reasons for their opinions. Um, but most just have opinions, as with most things. But is this ending particularly satisfying? Well, heck no. However, that still isn't reason enough for anyone to be 100% certain that the contested uh, verses after verse 8 are original. The angel gives the women this message, and they run. And I don't blame them, because this is like the scariest thing ever. But then they are like the only people who ever keep quiet about anything in the entire gospel. We had all these incidents where this guy and that guy are told not to blab. And what do they do? They go right out and run their mouths off, and Yeshua can't even be in a town anymore because folks are just flocking to him. But now when someone's actually told to go and blab, they uh, they don't. What we do know is that they were trembling, astonished, and afraid. Um, which seemed incredibly sensible to me. Of course, despite all this fear, we do know that they did at some point tell what happened. Evidently, they needed to calm down first. But this ending of Mark says nothing about any of that. Was it because the audience all knew? Was it a witticism at the end because humans are so prone to talk when they shouldn't and so averse to talking when they should? Was it meant to leave the audience in anticipation, which was, you know, a common rhetorical device in those days, like, you know, call it a cliffhanger? Was the original last page damaged, lost, or torn away? Truth is that we don't know, and too many people have been trained to suspect, quote-unquote, the lying pen of the scribe, as a solution to every textual question. Oh, they must have removed those final verses in order to subvert the gospel. To which I would reply, but what is there in those last verses that isn't in other places? Why do people always seem to be more apt to make the accusation that someone has taken away from instead of adding to? So let's look at those contested verses, uh, 9 through 20, and try to figure out what might have happened. Verse 9, and now when he rose early on the first day of the week, he appeared first to Mary Magdalene, from whom he had cast out seven demons. She went and told those who had been with him as they mourned and wept. But when they heard he was alive and had been seen by her, they would not believe it. After these things, he appeared in another form to two of them as they were walking into the country. And they went back and told the rest, but they didn't believe them. 
Afterward, he appeared to the eleven themselves as they were reclining at table, and he rebuked them for their unbelief and hardness of heart, because they had not believed those who saw him after he had risen. And he said to them, Go into all the world and proclaim the gospel to the whole creation. Whoever believes and is baptized will be saved, and whoever does not believe will be condemned. And these signs will accompany those who believe. In my name they will cast out demons, they will speak in new tongues, they will pick up serpents with their hands, and if they drink any deadly poison it will not hurt them. They will lay their hands on the sick and they will recover. <clears throat> so then the Lord Jesus, after he had spoken to them, was taken up into heaven and sat down at the right hand of God. And they went out and preached everywhere, while the Lord worked with them and confirmed the message by accompanying signs. So, okay, this is the longer ending, but not the longest ending. Otherwise, you know, notice the contested verses, or at least some of them, as we'll see. And we have decisions to make, right? Just for our own sanity. Was this added? Was it taken away? Or lost from some transmissions? You see, when people assume some sort of conspiracy to add or take away from the word, it only works when we have the mindset that says there's something dirty going on here, instead of looking generously at the possibilities and the rest of the biblical record. What do we know? The two oldest Greek manuscripts do not have final verses, these final verses. Many of the best manuscripts also lack these verses. None of the earliest church fathers ever mention these verses. The style is completely different, as are the words and language usage. The first day of the week here is referred to as prote sabatu instead of Mia ton sabaton. Mary is now alone when there were originally three of them. And this time she's introduced according to John's description in chapter 20 verses 14 through 18 as having seven demons cast out of her. But why when she was introduced as a disciple in Mark 1540 would she be reintroduced now and acting alone instead of in a group? And she seemingly heads to tell the eleven alone. Then we have the account echoed by Luke 24, verses 13 through 35, of the travelers on the road to Emmaus. Um, verses uh, 14 through 16, with Yeshua appearing to them and rebuking them, is very much like Matthew 28, verses 16 through 20. And then we have the stuff that's really controversial about believers casting out demons, speaking in strange tongues, which we see in um, Acts 2 and 10, the casting out demons more places than we can even, you know, picking up snakes, uh, which Paul did in Acts 28, drinking poison and recovering, um, that is not in the gospel accounts or Paul or the epistles, uh, laying hands on individuals, um, and healing them, which we see in Acts 3, 5, and 9, but this is a promise to those who believe and not to individuals. So that those is a collective. It's like um, when you, it's the difference between you and I'm talking to you and you. I'm talking to everybody. Okay. Um, so this would actually be a pretty good summation with the except the drinking poison of things that happened in the book of Acts to various believers. 
There are, of course, people who claim that if you can't handle snakes and do all that, then you aren't saved. I've done three of those things. And only one of them can I do when I decide to, and I have never handled snakes or purposely taken a sip of poison. Nor will I. Um, I am not going to tempt Yahweh. If Yeshua wouldn't throw himself down from the highest point in the temple, I am not going to start dining on Iocane powder. It would be inconceivable. Yeah, I just did that. Okay. So some scholars, like Hooker, see it as a patchwork quilt of the other Gospels and Acts created by later editors who weren't satisfied with verse 8 as the ending. While others like Gundry, they don't feel that the longer ending is original, but um, he believes there was a longer ending that was lost. But this isn't the only ending to consider. There's an entirely different ending that reads, but they reported briefly to Peter and those with him all they had been told. And after this, Jesus himself appeared to them and sent out by means of them from east to west the sacred and imperishable proclamation of eternal salvation. And this sounds nothing at all like Markan language. The sacred and imperishable proclamation of eternal salvation. I mean, that's like fancy talk, okay? And uh, there's another contested verse as well that um, is actually inserted into some manuscripts that have the longer ending, making it even longer. And they excuse themselves, saying, This age of lawlessness and unbelief is under Satan, who does not allow the truth and power of God to prevail over the unclean things of the spirits, or does not allow what lies under the clean spirits to understand the truth and power of God. Therefore reveal your righteousness now. Thus they spoke to Christ. And Christ replied to them, The terms of years of Satan's power has been fulfilled. But other terrible things draw near. For those who have sinned, I was handed over to death, um, that they may return to the truth and sin no more, in order that they may inherit the spiritual and incorruptible glory of righteousness that is in heaven. So, what happened? Was the author martyred? Or did he die before finishing? I mean, I, I guess he could have. Um, that was a rough time in Rome, and especially if the author was Jewish. And, of course, we know that this was intended for a Roman audience because of the terms and loan words and concepts used. Or maybe the ending was accidentally torn away and lost, which would be more likely believed if verse 8 wasn't a complete thought. You know, like if it had happened mid-sentence, right? If they said, and, then, you know. Or uh, maybe everyone knew the end of the story or it was like a cliffhanger. Truth is that we just don't know for sure. Did an editor make the changes because of what they considered to be dangerous heresies? That's how the creeds came up. Was it an attack on certain teachers who weren't miracle workers? Was that editor a part of a sect that pushed that all believers should be able to do those things that the believers could do in Acts? Uh, because of the late date that the first manuscript containing the longer version appears, it very well may be. Things uh, were really heating up as far as opposing theological ideas, and all these extra endings might have been written for entirely different reasons. If you have read texts like the Queen James Bible, then you know that people can and will change wording to suit their agendas, right? 
And despite the knee-jerk reaction of, well, don't you think God can protect his word? The truth is that manuscripts always have variations. The Dead Sea sect wrote some doozies to support their interpretations. If you followed my Isaiah and the Messiah series, you know how different the Septuagint reads from the later Masoretic text. And we don't really know how the uh, Hebrew read that the Septuagint was translated from because we don't have it. Uh, people change things. Is that a problem? Not really. The meaning of scripture doesn't hang on a few verses, and everything of true import is written in so many places, in so many ways, that it can't be lost unless the entire Bible is lost. Even if the Bibles were lost, the people of God still live and carry the good news within us. The kingdoms of this age can't kill the new creation. You know, it's, I suppose that'd be a way to say it. So wherever you fall into this debate... Remember that you can't prove anything, and the Bible is quite adequate to instruct us with or without these verses. It's about perspective. So, well, that's it for the Gospel of Mark, uh, 74 <laughs> programs. Um, before I begin the Gospel of Matthew, which I will do in half-hour increments instead of hour-long teachings, I need to do some other programs on how to study, how to tell a good author from a bad author, the importance of peer-reviewed, responsible hermeneutics, how not to be at the mercy of someone who's just making stuff up, you know, uh, cherry-picking, proof-texting, all that jazz. Uh, there's going to be lots of book recommendations for sure. Um, and in fact, if you aren't aware, I have a, I have a page on Facebook. It's called... Uh, Tyler's book sale recommendations, and I comb through the Kindle sales on scholarly books every single day, twice a day, and I'm looking for scholarly books that are marked way, way down. And I mean, I've gotten things 90% off. Um, actually, I've gotten things that are more. I once got a thing that was 95% off. <laughs> um, and, uh, you know, it's... it's you. If you're patient, you don't have to spend a fortune to uh, to do this. Anyway, um, I will see you hopefully next week. We'll just see about that. Bye-bye.